Hello, hello. Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina. This is where I am reading through the enormous library books you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. It's last Sunday of the month, which means it is time to learn about another president, and going in order, it is time for the 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, making this week's book of the week, with Malice Towards None, a biography of Abraham Lincoln by Stephen B. Oates. And the accompanying cocktail is simply called The Lincoln and is two ounces of smoked whiskey, a half ounce of maple syrup, and six dashes of bitters. Now I've already mixed the cocktail because I initially screwed up and forgot to put the microphone on. And you can barely hear me until I realized my screw up and put the microphone on. So, so I'm having to redo this. So I've already mixed the cocktail, guys. So I'm not going to include that. I'm just going to re-go re through what I've missed here. I'll drink the already mixed cocktail because I screwed up and I mixed it when I didn't have my microphone on. So let's do this. Abraham Lincoln was born on February 12, 1809 on the South Fork of Nolan Creek in Kentucky to Nancy Hanks Lincoln and Thomas Lincoln and the family was dirt poor. Uh, largely illiterate. Nancy was not able to read at all. Thomas, I think, was barely able to read, but was too busy scratching out a living to do much of that. For all of that, Nancy insisted that her children be educated, and Lincoln and his sister Sarah were, started going to school before moving, the family moved to Indiana in 1816. And about a year later, his mother died of milk sick, which is essentially poisoned by proxy. Cows will eat snake root plant, white snake root plant, excuse me, which the cows can digest as fine, but it makes their meat and milk toxic to humans, resulting in death. Two years after that, Thomas Lincoln remarried a widower, Sarah Bush Johnston, aka Sally, and she became the mother that Lincoln knew and remembered as he grew up. Now, regardless of which mother was in charge, both of them wanted Lincoln to at least be able to read and write and do math, and so they insisted that he attend the local schools, and Thomas never said anything against it. He was fine with his children being educated. But when not in school, Lincoln worked local farms, and he grew up to be a very tall, kind of wiry youth with whipcord strength. And the legends about his log-splitting capabilities have solid basis in fact, um, as do the legends of his wrestling abilities. I mean, he, he had a tendency to make friends with people in his youth, so those he wrestled with and against tended to become his biggest champions. Now, up until he reached his majority at 21 years old, any money that Lincoln earned legally belonged to his father, and the family moved several more times, eventually settling in Illinois. And no matter where they moved, Lincoln worked hard. But when he reached 21, he had an opportunity to travel with a cargo boat to Louisiana and return with freight for a shop in New, uh, New Salem, Illinois. And when Lincoln proved himself so well that the shop owner hired him to run the shop, and eventually Lincoln owned the New Salem shop along with his friend William Berry. Now, the two of them had a grand time with the shop. They loved running it, but they were horrendous bookkeepers and ended up losing the shop due to their inability to pay their creditors. By the time the shop folded, Berry had crawled into a whiskey barrel, which he never crawled out of, leaving Lincoln the option of declaring bankruptcy and fleeing Illinois, which is what a lot of bankrupts did back then because they didn't have the internet, so it was a lot harder to find you if you fled your creditors or he could figure out a way to pay his debts. And he chose that option. He began building a reputation as a highly ethical man, a man of his word, a man who would pay his debts come hell or high water, no matter how old they were. And it took him like a decade to pay it off. Now, during this time, he was endlessly fascinated with politics and the law. 
and ultimately ended up teaching himself the law. Literally, he taught himself. Uh, this was an option in the 19th century. You didn't have to go to law school because law school wasn't technically a thing. You'd go to college and then you'd apprentice with a lawyer. That's what most people did. They'd go to college and apprentice with a lawyer. Lincoln did not go to college. He just picked up Blackstone's law, memorized the damn thing, and passed the bar, which was completely an option, and that's what he did. He then entered state politics, becoming a member of the Illinois House of Representatives as a member of the Whig Party. His first real courtship was with Mary Owens, who he sort of remembered from a Kentucky connection, who was who a mutual friend was like, hey, if I get her to come to Illinois, would you marry her? And Illinois at this time is the frontier. There, there were not a whole lot of options. Women weren't exactly flocking to Illinois at this time. Most of the women who came in came in because their parents moved them there and not by choice. And so Lincoln initially said yes, because he didn't think he'd ever get married if he didn't say yes. But when she got there, there were no sparks. They kind of courted in a lackluster fashion, but ultimately Lincoln's reception of her was so ungentlemanly that when he sent her kind of a half-assed, hey, my word is my bond, if you still want to get married, let's do this, she got insulted and left. She's like, no, I'm screw this guy. Which I guess worked out for Lincoln, because then he married, married, met and married Mary Todd. Um, despite, <coughs> and Mary Todd, she was from a very well-off family. They objected to Lincoln on multiple levels, not least of which he was still poor and still paying off creditors. But she still married him. They had four children, Robert, Eddie, Willie, and Tad. Now, because he was paying off those prior debts, their initial marriage house was a tavern because that's what he could afford. And this left Mary with an absolute dread of poverty, but no real sense of budgeting because she had grown up as kind of a pampered child and she didn't know how to budget or how to manage a budget. Uh, Lincoln did ultimately pay off all of his debts and became a highly successful lawyer and legislature, serving eight years in the Illinois legislature before dedicating a few years to national politics. Now, let me explain that. He did not serve a few years in national politics, but he did become a guiding voice in the Whig Party in Illinois in the 1840s, kind of brokering a compromise deal wherein several leading Whigs would each serve one term in the U.S. House of Representatives, allowing each to get the experience, himself included. Uh, his term was 1847 to 1849, and he was in the House on the day that John Quincy Adams had a stroke in Congress. That's not in this book. That's in the book I read on John Quincy Adams. What is in this book was also in the Polk book, and what Lincoln became most known for during his time in the, uh, on the House floor was challenging President Polk to show exactly where American blood had been spilled that justified the Mexican-American War. And that brings us up to speed for when I realized that I had screwed up and not put on my microphone and merge the videos. Now, after his term in Washington was up, uh, Lincoln returned to Illinois and dedicated himself to being a lawyer, and he was an excellent lawyer. He was able to represent all sides of the matter. There were at least two cases in regards to slavery where the facts were very, very similar. In one case, Lincoln argued that the slave in question should go free, and he won his case. And in the other case, he argued the slave in question should remain in bondage, and he won his case. Because he was able to argue both effectively. On the question of slavery, Lincoln did believe slavery was a great sin and should not exist in a free country. The record's very clear on that. It's also very clear that he was not an abolitionist, as those were seen as entirely too radical for mainstream America. And also, he did not even for a second believe that black people were equal to white people. Just because he didn't think they should be slaves did not mean he thought they were equal. He emphatically did not. And that's very important to the points leading up to and during the Civil War.
1850, you know what, I need to take a sip of this. Let's try this. Well, that's interesting. So at first you can definitely taste the smoke in the whiskey, and then you get just a hint of the maple as an after flavor. That's interesting. Well, okay. Now in 1850, while successfully lawyering up and down Illinois, their second born, Eddie, died at three years old. A specific cause of death unknown, but listed as consumption, which was kind of a catch-all term for wasting diseases in the 19th century. And Mary was devastated and sort of started a slow ride off her rocker. And I mean, it didn't really take hold until later, but Mary also, I mean, that retail therapy started to really come into play and her morbid fear of the poorhouse was not enough to curtail some pretty hefty spending habits, which would cause friction off and on in the marriage for the duration. Now in 1854, the Whig party basically gasped its last dying breath and Lincoln quickly joined the Republican party in time to stump for John C. Fremont as the first presidential first Republican candidate in 1856 up against James Buchanan. And when the senatorship from Illinois came up for election in 1858, Lincoln put his name in as a possible candidate, even campaigning for it, which was kind of unusual because at this point in U.S. history, senators were selected by the state's individual houses, not by direct election of the people. Uh, so that the House of Representatives in Illinois is the one who would choose who went to the, the DC. But Lincoln got a taste of disappointment during this because even though he won the popular vote for senator in Illinois, the democratically controlled Illinois House of Representatives once more sent Stephen Douglas back to DC. And Lincoln at this point was pretty sure he was done with politics. Uh, and that seems to happen to most of the presidents before they get nominated is they're like, well, I'm done. But all the speeches and debates he did against Douglas came to the attention of the national Republicans who approached Lincoln to be their candidate for the 1860 presidential race which he won quite handily when Stephen Douglas split the Democratic ticket. Now, as discussed last month during the James Buchanan book, South Carolina, the day he won, South Carolina seceded, which is really dumb, because you know it was not in last month's book, and I know because I went back and double checked, make sure I didn't just miss it, um, but I read it in this month's book, which was the 13th Amendment. No, not the one that Lincoln got passed shortly before meeting his fate. The one the Republican-controlled Congress passed trying to save the Union, and which Buchanan signed. And the, the, the one that only needed to be ratified by the states to enshrine slavery as a constitutional right forever. No joke. Google Buchanan 13th Amendment. If the South hadn't thrown a fit, if they had kept their feet in the Union game until Lincoln's inauguration in March of 1861, that version of the 13th Amendment would have been handily ratified by the states that desperately did not want a civil war and armed insurrection by angry rednecks. And because it would have been legally passed under the tenets of the Constitution, Lincoln would have done nothing about it. Um, as he said and is known to have said and is quoted in this book, if I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. If I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. His whole driving goal was, was not freeing the slaves. It was a plank on his Republican platform, but it's not what his goal was. His goal was to preserve the Union. That was his goal. The South, I mean, their snit was unquestionably about slavery and property rights, specifically the right to own people. So there was pretty much always going to be a showdown on that one. 
So immediately after his election, Lincoln, of course, begins picking his cabinet, and his first and best cabinet pick was William H. Seward, who was his Secretary of State. And at first, it is not obvious that Seward was a good pick, because Seward seemed to believe that he was basically going to be running the country, and Lincoln quickly disabused him of that notion. And once the power structure was firmly established, with Lincoln sitting at the top of the pyramid, they became friends, like fast friends. And the rest of his cabinet kind of came and went throughout his tenure at the White House, but Seward remained unchanged and steady. What also changed a lot during the ge- were the generals during the Civil War. I'm reading a book specifically on the Civil War next month, so I'm hoping there will be more detail about that. And I don't want to go too heavy into it right now because of my reading next month. But seriously, George McClellan was a nightmare. I mean, all of them were nightmares except for Ulysses S. Grant and to some extent Meade. But, I mean, like, how the hell did the Union win the Civil War? And Grant wasn't made general of the Union troops until like 1863. The first two years, Lincoln gave McClellan chance after chance and actually got his, to, to like get his ass in gear and engage General Lee. And after the first two years, Lincoln began replacing generals like they were Tic Tacs. He dropped on the ground, I mean, except for Grant. He, he liked Grant. He liked Grant's style. He liked that Grant kept the army moving by using the country they were traveling through for supplies, which has a double purpose because it also denies those supplies to the uh, people living there who would be Confederate sympathizers. So rather than sticking to a home base, and uh, he liked that Grant never asked for reinforcements. Grant was a guy who got shit done. So Grant was promoted to lieutenant general and put in charge of all the armies. For his part, Grant is the only general Lincoln had who did not feel he was allowed to question the politicians' every move. His job was to win. Like, point blank, that's his job, win the war. And he did. Boy, did he win. And there were some defeats, but overall, once Grant came into play, the Union started winning. Now, for his part, Lincoln issued his famous Emancipation Proclamation. This has been carefully misunderstood by people seeking to lionize Lincoln for well over a century at this point. The Emancipation Proclamation did not free the slaves. It freed the slaves in any state in rebellion. And this is an important distinction to make because not every single slave-owning state in the Union was in rebellion. Notably, you've got Kentucky, Missouri, Maryland, and Delaware. These are the border states. These states all allowed slavery, but they did not join the Confederacy. They remained in the Union, and so slavery in those states remained intact. Prior to this, Lincoln had issued an edict that any slaves in the Confederacy who are working for the Confederate Army were contraband. Not even people. They are contraband and could be seized as contraband. Still didn't see them as people. The Emancipation Proclamation opened the door for black men to fight in the Union, and they did. Boy, did they fight. They showed up in droves and did a hell of a job. I mean, I'm not at all sure the Union could have won without those troops. Um, By the end of the Civil War, approximately 10% of the Union Army were black men. So, and that is thanks to the Emancipation Proclamation. But Lincoln still did not see them as equal and paid them less than what he paid the white enlisted men. So, it's not bad. Not sure if it's my favorite, but it's not bad. See, I like smoked beer, but I'm not sure if I like smoked whiskey. Now, back in Washington, Lincoln had to open a draft requiring enlistment with the Union Army. This caused rioting, especially in the northern states who thought slavery was evil, but were unwilling to die for the cause. Um, Die to maintain the Union, yes, but die to free a bunch of black people? No, they were not at all interested in that. And there were actual race riots in New York. Um, If you ever watched uh, Gangs of New York, that it was 
was it Daniel Day-Lewis? I think it was Daniel Day-Lewis and Leonardo DiCaprio, and they made it seem like, you know, they were all trying, that the Irish were fighting on behalf of the black people in New York. They were not. The Irish were lynching the black people in New York. All right, that movie was wildly inaccurate on many levels. There's actually a book called Gangs of New York, which I've read and was amazing, covered a lot of that. Yeah, they, they were hanging, they were, they were lynching black people in New York, so don't let them don't let Hollywood lie to you any more than they already do. That's all I'm saying. So, in the race riots in New York, they required mobilization of National Guard troops, which I'm stunned the National Guard wasn't already mobilized for the war, but they mobilized the National Guard to go and defend the black communities. That's how bad it got, because the irate Irish did not feel they should have to die for the freedom of black men. And at an added sticking point politically, Lincoln had excused his oldest son, Robert, from serving at marriage request. Their third child, Willie, had died while Lincoln was in the White House. Mary could not bear the thought of losing another child and begged Lincoln to keep Robert out of the war, which he did up until like the last six months. And then uh, basically a congressman confronted Mary and was like, I see your son is safe behind the lines. And that embarrassed her. And so they authorized it. And Robert was made like an aide de camp to Grant, basically. Um, as I mentioned a couple of times, Mary used retail therapy uh, when she when they first were moved into the White House. She used retail ther therapy to refurbish the White House, which was fine as far as that goes because Congress had appropriated twenty thousand dollars for the project, and Mary spent that gladly and then spent seven thousand dollars more, and then had to ask Lincoln to cover the shortfall, which he was beyond angry about, because by this time, by the time this shortfall came up. Uh, corruption in the War Department had been uncovered with Lincoln's first Secretary of War, Simon Cameron, who was involved in repeated shady dealings with purchasing subpar supplies from favored vendors rather than accepting multiple bids for the supplies. And uh, basically they'd buy them, sell them back, buy them, sell them back, shuffle all this money around so that war profiteers got rich. Isn't that lovely? And the men had no shoes. So Lincoln was pissed when Mary came to him and was like, oh my God, I overspent the budget by $7,000. And he refused to ask Congress for any more money and was basically going to pay it out of pocket, which he didn't really have the money for. And Lincoln's salary was $25,000 per year as president, but he was expected to pay the salary of his staff out of that budget. So it wasn't like he was just making that money. He had to pay all the staff of the White House and his own staff, his secretaries, out of that budget. But he was going to pay it himself. Now, Congress stepped in and pulled Mary's butt out of the fire and appropriated the $7,000 to, uh, to cover it. And Cameron was quietly shuffled off to become minister of Russia, or to Russia, excuse me. Mary, at this point, took her shopping underground. She never quite told Lincoln how much she was spending. When uh, It's kind of like when a wife opens that Amazon card without telling her husband and... Uh, accumulates $27,000 in debt to various, to, 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 you know, merchants. Yeah, that was her actual sum, $27,000 in personal debt for shopping. In $1860, what would that even be? You know what, I'm gonna look it up. I'll look it up and I'll, I'll, I'll uh, include the amount in $2022 over here. But she managed to accumulate $27,000 in various debts to merchants over the next several years. And she was frantic that Lincoln not find out about her profligate spending, which I don't think he did. I think that a bullet saved Mary from the mortification of having to tell her husband what she had done. She probably would have preferred to tell her husband what had happened rather than lose him the way she did, but she 
she dodged the metaphorical bullet, I guess. That's your dose of dark humor for the day. Lincoln was not a popular president in his day. I, like I said, I know that the Republicans, especially today, tend to lionize him and hold him up as, as the savior of everything. The Republicans hated him, the Democrats hated him. He wasn't even sure if he would be nominated for a second term. And since, since Andrew Jackson, no president had sat for more than one term. I read that and I was like, no, that can't be right. And then I thought about it, I'm like, oh shit, that is right. Because Van Buren only sat for one term. William Henry Harrison died, but John Tyler only sat for one term. Polk was only one term. Polk was planned one term, but you had Zachary Taylor died, Millard Fillmore one term, not even one term because he just finished out, like, did he serve one term? Hold on. Anyways, that was accurate. I, I looked at my notes and I'm like, oh shit, that's right. He, he was literally the, the first president to actually get a second term after his first. But it's probably accurate to say that the people voted against George McClellan more than they voted for Abraham Lincoln. So apparently that's when that trend started, right? Up till this point, people voted for who they wanted to be president. I think from here, it's all a downhill slide and people just started voting against the person they hate rather than for the person they want. We'll see, we'll find out more about that next month. Obviously Lincoln did win a second term, which he saw as vindication, both of his emancipation of the slaves in the rebelling states and of his reconstruction plan which required 10% of the voting populace to swear loyalty to the Union, as well as a state constitution which did not allow slavery. And that was his way of ending slavery, was to require the states to write it out of their new constitutions. And of course, Lincoln was shot in the head on April 14, 1865, by John Wilkes Booth, becoming the first president to be assassinated. Third to die in office, first of assassination. He was briefly brought back by an army doctor who happened to be in the theater, but he never regained consciousness after being shot, dying roughly 11 hours later on April 15, 1865. Lincoln, I think obviously he was in a tough spot. I, I do think the Civil War was inevitable. The slavery question had become so contentious in this country and the abolitionists had fought so hard. I really want to read a book on John Brown and Harper's Ferry. I, I, I found several. I'm not sure which one I'm going to buy yet, but I I'm going to read one on him. Um, and I, there's several people from that era that are just fascinating in and of themselves that I want to read books on. But I think that the Civil War would have happened regardless. And I'll, I'll go into that more when I read the book on the Civil War. But from what I've seen, everything, I'm like, this this was going to happen. There, there, there was no way we were not going to fight this war at some point in our history. Because even though Lincoln didn't see black men and women as equal, enough Americans did. That would be John Brown and Harper's Ferry and the abolitionists. And I'll, like I said, I'll explore that next month. I think though, Lincoln was desperate to preserve the Union. I mean, this was a grand experiment in self-government. It was not even a hundred years since we started that he was sworn in and how horrifying would it have been to see the experiment end under his tenure? Because I mean, he could have, right? He could have just said, okay, well, the South seceded Dianara. Um, he even had a, his, his first attorney general write up a very dubious brief on why it was constitutionally illegal for them to secede. Remember though, John Tyler, my favorite president, number one, uh, he was a strict constitutionalist, strict 
constitutionalist. And he went down in history as a traitor because he's like, well, I mean, it's not illegal for them to secede. You know, he's reviled because of that. Um, but it was not against the Constitution for the South to secede, which is why he was he he went to the you know Confederate Congress and and spoke there. And anyways, that was a few months ago. Book February, I think. Anyways, so I do think, based on later conversations with Frederick Douglass and. That Lincoln, and he, I think he may have come to see black men and women as equal, and that was certainly helped along by Mary's friend and White House seamstress Elizabeth Keckley, who was a former slave from Missouri. I think we'll never know for sure. Part of the reason I think that he came, he did come to see them as equal, is um, during his second inaugural ball in March of 1865, Frederick Douglass showed up. And he was st initially stopped at the door by the guards, and, and security was very tight because the assassination attempts were well known. Like they knew that people wanted to kill Lincoln; he was that unpopular. But the people near and dear him loved him and took his safety pretty seriously. So they stopped Frederick Douglass, and when Lincoln found out Douglass was there, he said, "We'll bring him in, bring him in." And he greeted Douglass as an equal in front of everybody, which is huge, huge for the 19th century. And I think it does show a shifting mindset for Lincoln. So I think that maybe at the very end there he had come to see black people as equal certainly wasn't the case when everything started so one of the underlying themes in the book was the mysticism you you have to it has to be there because of who mary was um, the author notes specifically that after his first election to the white house lincoln recorded a dream where he had two faces and mary interpreted this to mean that he would not live out a second term he still ran for a second term, but that's how she interpreted it. And then following his second election, Lincoln had a dream where he was attending a funeral, and when he asked who died, he was told it was the President of the United States. So there was some certainly some mysticism in there, and again, it has to be included because Mary was a spiritualist. Um, the deaths of her two middle children, Eddie and Willie, led her down this spiritualist path where she tried to connect with them and she often had dreams of her two lost children. And, and I mean, who's to say, right? Maybe the Grim Reaper stalking of our nation from 1861 to 1865 left the veil thinner and maybe Mary was able to make contact. Or maybe she was a grief-stricken mother whose sorrows were not over yet. The author does not I mean, I don't know. It seems as though Lincoln died before discovering Mary's extreme shopping sprees in New York, and the author does not go into what happened there. I mean, he pretty much ended the book with Lincoln's returning to Illinois, along with uh, Willie's body for burial in Springfield. So Willie was initially interred in D.C., and I'm pretty sure they probably would have removed him to Springfield regardless when, I mean, if Lincoln had lived, because then he'd be buried next to Eddie in the family plot, so that just makes sense, but... Um, and at the start of the war, the start of his life, Lincoln was basically as racist as your average American in the 19th century. Yes, he disliked slavery, but did not think black people were equal to white people. His issuing of the Emancipation Proclamation was purely political. I mean, by suddenly pivoting and making the war not about the preservation of the Union, but about slavery, he basically ensured that Europe was going to stay out of it. Um, because Europe had long since... Uh, made slavery illegal. I mean, it had been illegal for at least 30 years in England. Um, 
And that would have been catastrophic. If, if the nations of Europe had recognized the Confederacy as an independent nation, then they would have been open to trading with the Confederacy. And he, he really needed them to see this as nothing more than an internal struggle and an armed insurrection. Although, and this is telling, right? And it's equally likely that the very well-placed Charles Francis Adams, son of John Quincy and grandson of John, who was, was the Minister of England during the Civil War, convinced England to stay out of it diplomatically. Charles was every bit the incredibly capable diplomat that both his father and grandfather had been. And it's very likely that he talked to his English counterpart and said, no, you don't want any part of this. This is nothing more than an us problem and you guys should stay out of it. And England was like, yeah, we, we don't really want to fight with America right now. We just, the rest of our uh, empire is starting to crumble. We're going to deal with that while you guys deal with your shit. But the Adamses were never friends of slavery. And being one of the only founding fathers and then the two Adamses were the only two of our first 10 presidents to never own slaves. Martin Van Buren owned slaves. They might be like the first two of like our first 15 presidents to never own slaves. I think Lincoln did as well as he could, but I also think if he had cut McClellan loose at the first hint of refusal to fight, and there were a lot of hints of refusal to fight, the war could have been ended a lot sooner and many hundreds of thousands of lives would have been saved. And who knows how our country would have changed with that many people contributing to our future. This was a well-written biography. It cut out a lot of fluff. and Biographers tend to include a lot of fluff when talking about their pet topic. Uh, he kept it on point. He did touch on the mysticism, but how not to when Mary was a spiritualist. I think we need to put Lincoln at eight on my personal rankings, kind of middle of the pack. I'm gonna move Polk down. Um, I don't know, maybe nine. And Polk was pretty huge as far as it goes in expanding our nation, but Lincoln kept it intact. I may have to revise this. I don't know. We'll, we'll do eight for now. Uh, Lincoln was unquestionably racist, and despite the Emancipation Proclamation, was not the great liberator that the Republicans like to sell him as. Everything he did was politically motivated, including the freeing of the slaves and the passage of you know the actual 13th Amendment, which was ratified after his death. Uh, but it was not done for the good of the slaves or the former slaves. It was to ensure his own political power base. And the fact that it benefited approximately 4 million individual slaves was sheer coincidence because he did not intend for those slaves to be enfranchised to vote. That uh, 14th Amendment was passed well after his death. And that was a, a natural consequence of Reconstruction and the passage of the 13th Amendment, which has freed them all, as well as the diligent work of other radical Republicans. And it was considered very radical to want to enfranchise them. Um, but they thought, yes, the black vote does matter and they should be able to vote. And that is, that is a consequence of the Republican Party, right? Truly. I mean, Lincoln, I'm kind of eh on, but that was one of the Republican Party's first planks was free the black people and franchise them to vote. Those were things they wanted to do. Uh, I mean, hell, the first several years of the war, Lincoln wanted to purchase all the slaves and resettle them in Haiti or Liberia. He abandoned those plans for two reasons. First off, the vast majority of the former slaves didn't want to go, and why would they? At this point, most of them had been born in the United States, knew nothing about Liberia or Haiti. The approximately 500 who did volunteer for resettlement to Haiti had to be rescued and brought back to the United States during the height of the Civil War. 
after extreme mismanagement of the funds by the white overseers of the program. And it's not pretty, right? There's a lot about, there's a lot to love about America and American history, but there's also a lot to go like, and cringe at. But that's true, again, of all history everywhere, right? The entire globe is filled with people who are a mix of good and bad, and we're certainly no different. Um, but it's pretty disingenuous to pretend like racism wasn't a thing. I think what shocks me is how anyone could look at the already existing programs regarding the Native American populations and think, oh yeah, we could totally make this work for black people. I, I mean, even then, the highly corrupt Indian agents were a known quantity to be ousted when discovered. I mean, frankly, his political naivete is a bit astounding at points. So uh, that's it for this week. Overall, a good book. I'm going to spend August with the Civil War and aftermath, given that next month's president is, of course, Andrew Johnson, who inherited the position on Lincoln's assassination. But next week, we're going to read about Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. Um, didn't want to give him an actual, like a last Sunday, like an actual president, but he's important enough historically to rate his own book on this matter, so that'll be next week. And uh, I'll see you then. Bye.